Welcome to VCR, a vintage cinema rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake. And I'm not Jason. Yeah, welcome <laughs> to the podcast, Mike. Yeah, glad to be here, glad to be here. Yeah, it's your first uh, episode, and we're doing the draft episode in our next episode, a little bit later in September, mm-hmm. uh, which you and I, I know, are both really excited about. Maybe me, excited. a little bit more. I'm ecstatic. I'm so pumped. Um <laughs> But we're bringing you in for a first episode to get kind of your uh, feel for the podcast. Yeah, exactly. I asked you if you wanted to pick the movie. We did a foreign film, and you swung for the fences. (laughs) What a movie I chose for my first. Maybe, um, maybe we should go into. I have a little bit of a checkered history with this movie. Yeah, that was Um, actually a question I was going to ask you. So the movie we're doing is Eight and a Half, which is Federini Felico's probably magnum opus film, uh, seminal piece. That came out in 1963. 63. It's a surrealist comedy drama. And maybe we should start with the plot. And then I, I do want to hear about your relationship with this movie. Okay, because it, uh, it is quite the relationship. Okay, can, can I do the plot summary? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Go for it. So our hero is a 43-year-old director named Guido. He's working on a vague sci-fi epic that is really not going well. He's struggling with a massive creative block, and he's struggling with pressure from producers, from actors, from set designers who all want more specific details about this masterpiece he's supposedly cooking up. But he's kind of running on empty, and he has no idea what he's doing. Meanwhile, he's also keeping busy cheating on his wife, and... (laughs) I feel like that's almost kind of the most concise plot summary I can give. Yeah, I think so as well. Like, there's basically two main aspects to the film, and it's the film within the film, like Guido's struggles as a director and writer of the film mm-hmm. um, to come up with anything, <laughs> really. Dude, dude anything. <laughs> um, and the other part of it is the personal relationships that he has with his wife and his mistress and people on set, um, mm-hmm. his parents, like it's it's a pretty deep film diving into a lot of uh, psychoanalysis and there's there's a lot of Freudian elements, I would say. Oh, just a just a little, yeah. just a few, yeah. <laughs> um, so this is not an easy film to digest on first viewing, and. This is probably, what, your third or fourth watch through now? So, going into my sort of history with this movie, um, for those of you who don't know, which is all of you, actually. Um, <laughs> you are brand new to the yeah. podcast. Hi, yes. guys. Uh, glad to be here. But um, I did two years, two and a half years of film school. This was one of the films we studied, and I would have watched this movie for the first time when I was, like, 18, and I remember my friends in film school really not liking it. Mm, like really bouncing off it, really right. finding it, I guess, pretentious and indulgent. Yeah. And at the time, I loved it. Like, I was crazy about it. Really? But that comes with the caveat of saying I was having my own little affair with film itself. Interesting. Like, you could have shown me artsy footage of paint drying at 18, <laughs> and I would have, like, wept with joy. Right. So... You and I had a phone call earlier this week where 
we I had picked this movie and I was saying I'm curious to see how I'm going to react to this movie now 11 years later. Right. Cuz I still love film, obviously. I yep. wouldn't be doing this if I weren't, but it's not really, you know, I have different tastes. Yeah, and your taste in film has probably evolved over the last 10 years as yeah. as you've grown and become like a mature adult, mm-hmm. which is still debatable for both of us, but super debatable. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I was really interested to hear your outlook on this because obviously, this is one of the most critically acclaimed films of all time. Um, yes, it definitely it is. Often appears in top 10 lists, uh, especially for directors and critics, maybe lesser so with general audiences, but I think we'll talk about that a little bit later and who the movie is for. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was really interested to hear about your relationship with this. Do you remember what jumped out at you when you originally when I was a kid? saw it? Yeah. I think the only things I really remembered were, going into this again, were the opening scene and the harem scene. Okay. Obviously, those are two hard things to forget. Yeah. But yeah, those were the two things that jumped out at me the most. Okay, fair enough. Or I guess the two things that lingered the most... Yeah, that's yeah. fair. And sometimes we judge a movie on what lingers uh, and and what stuck with us over time. There's actually, I'm I'm really excited to talk about some of the scenes in the film because I think I appreciated the film for some different aspects. Um, and, yeah. and we'll get into those a little bit later when we get into the spoiler section. Okay. But I think I think you've summarized the plot pretty pretty well. I think one of the things that I appreciate that the film does really well is that uh, it evokes like a sense of claustrophobia almost, and having all of these people constantly surrounding Guido and pressuring him to come up with the whole plan of the movie. Like they've already started production at this point. They have these big set pieces built and designed. He's got all of these different people who are relying on him, like the producers and the actors of the film to make a bunch of creative executive decisions and he's not willing or able or even maybe capable of making these decisions right now uh, especially when there's all of these other elements with his personal life and his family and everything else that are definitely impacting his attention and and his decision making process you know this isn't really a spoiler but uh my roommate watched part of this movie with me and he said is this whole movie just him walking away from people? <laughs> and I'm like, you're not really wrong. <laughs> yeah. That's a great point as yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, like he's very, um, and this isn't really a spoiler, but just the main character of Guido is exceptionally unlikable. Like, yeah. he's very cowardly and spineless and he's very good at avoiding responsibility and ducking people. <laughs> but the movie is aware of this, and the movie doesn't really let him off the hook for any of this. No, I would say the movie holds him accountable really throughout the movie. Like it it's not like he just get one runs off into the sunset. Like it's not it's not <laughs> no. necessarily a happy ending. It's I mean it's an ending that's maybe a little bit complicated, and I think that you and I might have to discuss what the ending means a little bit. I think we're going to have to talk about it, because um, holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe we should... Um, I don't know if this is jumping ahead, but like, yep. let me just ask you. Did you enjoy this movie? Did you enjoy the experience of watching it? The short answer is, I don't know, and okay. I still haven't figured that out. That's a very fair and honest answer. And I think you were smart to watch this an extra halftime even though you got an extra halftime in 
I think that was smart, especially for this podcast episode in your understanding of the film and, and maybe why it's important. I don't really want to get into my personal review quite yet. Okay, let's let's keep people in suspense. Yeah. Keep me in suspense. Sounds good. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think where we move on to next is characters and people you may know. Okay. And I think where we need to start with this is actually at the director's seat. Usually okay. we talk about the actors and, and why they're important and, mm-hmm. and what other works they did. But one of the most crucial aspects of this movie and understanding this movie is understanding the person behind the camera i think okay fellini yes federico fellini is uh, an italian director was an italian director he was known for making films that had a blend of like memory and dreams fantasies and desires and and that's something that is very apparent in this film there's a lot of scenes that you might not quite know right off the bat if it's a dream, if it's uh, a memory. It's, if, it's vague. Yeah, it's, it's very, very vague. vague. You kind of have to interpret what's what throughout the film. I would say for the most part, I understood what was happening or I understood whether something was a dream or not. Sometimes it wasn't always apparent initially. And the film itself opens in kind of a dreamlike sequence, I would say, like very dreamlike it's not immediately apparent that it's dreamlike but yeah going off what you said earlier that sense of like claustrophobia and pressure is pretty obvious right away yeah exactly um we're gonna talk about this i think a little bit more in effects and filming and the background of how this movie came to be it's semi-biographical almost as well. Like yeah. it's based on Fellini's experiences making this film, which is weird because it's like, how are you basing a film off of a film? Off that, of a film? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it's very filmception-y. You know, um, my roommate, Pedden, you know, he asked me, and I thought this was a fair question, is this the director? Like mm-hmm. he pointed to the lead actor. He's like, is this the director playing the lead actor? And I looked it up, and it's not. No. But it seems like it could be, or it almost should be, in a sense, because it feels very personal. It And it is a very personal movie. Mm-hmm. It, and a lot of the creative struggles that Guido has are reflections of Fellini's struggles as well in, in making this film, which, again, is it's hard to conceptualize somebody struggling to making a film struggling to make a film so he makes a film about struggling to make a film and yeah. somehow coherently puts it together in the way that he has <laughs> coherently is a little debatable but yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very uh, interesting yeah and so federico fellini is also known for a few other italian films like he has a pretty large filmography a lot mm-hmm. of them are very critically acclaimed he's won a number of oscars so other films that you might have heard of of his include la dolce vita uh knights of cabiria the road and not the new the road but okay. the old the road just checking um and i Vital- vitaloni I'm sorry uh, if I mispronounced any of those. A lot of very Italian titles. Yes. Yeah. Very influential Italian filmmaker. So that's a bit of the background on the director himself. The movie is called Eight and a Half because it's actually his Eight and a Half film. Mm -hmm. Um, He considers one of his previous works, he collaborated on it. So that was his half film and then... 
because we are. obviously this yes the eighth and a half being movie. in the eight and a half so even the, the name being kind of self-referential being autobiographical biographical yeah <laughs> so let's move into the characters and people you may know so we've already talked a little bit about guido who is our main character and the hero question mark of the story hero in quotation marks yeah like big quotation marks <laughs> yeah he's somebody who i think is struggling he's struggling in both aspects of his life professionally and personally um yeah. he's kind of floating somewhere in the middle of both of them he as as somebody who i guess is a creative director um and is constantly telling stories and telling like you can boil them down to lies essentially mm-hmm. he struggles to be honest in his own life and with the people that he's most close to uh, especially being his wife one of the other main characters of the film especially his wife yeah he's really interesting because like you said earlier he's he's constantly floating between people not really giving anyone any clear direction or providing any answers to what the film itself is kind of going off what i said earlier i do find it really interesting how guido isn't really meant to be like he's not really likable and he's not really meant to be likable right there's actually i noticed this on my uh half rewatch there's a scene early on where everyone's dancing and guido's kind of sitting off in the distance not talking to anyone and he's wearing a rubber nose and then interesting yeah and then later oh on, yes sorry yeah <laughs> what do you mean <laughs> i then, I thought it was like a subtle rubber nose, but I I do actually remember the rubber nose that you're talking about. cartoony <laughs> rubber yeah. nose. And then later on in his harem sequence, uh, Rosella, I think it's his wife's sister, she compares him to Pinocchio. Yeah, that's her friend. Yeah, her friend. So... A little bit of a callback, maybe. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> but so. also like imagery of, of the lies that he's been telling and... and I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. Exactly. There's another scene where he kind of comes back to his room after avoiding responsibilities for another day. And he says, like, he asks himself, like, what does it mean to be truly honest? Right. Almost like he doesn't know. Like yeah. Like, he's lost sight of whatever the truth is. Yeah. And that's definitely apparent. Like, that's a, a very central theme of the film, which we'll probably discuss a little bit further. Mm-hmm. So Guido is played by Marcello Mastrioni, a pretty prominent actor in Italian cinema, also collaborated with Fellini in other films such as La Dolce Vita. Uh, So they do have a bit of a connection as well in in previous films. There's a couple other characters that I want to talk about. Uh, We've already mentioned Luisa, who is Guido's wife. She comes in maybe after the first third or about halfway into the film. I think about halfway. Yeah. yeah. He invites her to the movie because their their relationship is a little bit strained at this point in time. Yeah. Um, I think partially because of being a director having to be away. There's also the fact that Guido struggles to be honest and be honest with other people um, and be honest with himself maybe as well. Louisa's a very intelligent character. Um, mm. She doesn't believe Guido and often and, and can kind of sense some of the underlying bullshit. And she's pretty skeptical of Guido and Guido's intentions throughout the film. I found myself significantly better disposed towards Louisa than I was towards Guido. Yeah. Like, there's a very... Um, 
there's a scene later on in the movie where so Louisa has this friend Enrico who's kind of like your typical I don't want to say nice guy but your typical nice guy who's kind of like <laughs> no that's a good way yeah, to describe it yeah like uh, Guido refers to him as that gentle fellow the guy who like listens to her and yes. runs errands for her and stuff and Guido despite the fact that Guido's I'm assuming having has had multiple affairs he's worried that Louisa might be cheating on him with Enrico and then later on in the movie, they come into their room together, and Louisa just kind of laughs and says something to the effect of, like, I could never cheat on you. Like, how could anyone live like that? Like, constantly having to cover your tracks, right. constantly having to lie. And then she turns to him, and she's like, but you do it so easily. Yeah. It, it's really fascinating to see, and and this is something that comes up is maybe even relevant. It, it's probably always relevant to the human experience is outwardly projecting your own insecurities yes absolutely so louisa is played by anuka me another italian prominent italian actress uh she actually was one of the main characters in the dolce vita as well so another fellini connection um she also was the star of the other films a man and a woman and lola Surprisingly, I have a modern day connection here to a film that you've probably seen in the last 20 years. Shut up. Let's hear it. Uh, She makes an appearance in the film Stranger Than Fiction, the Will Ferrell dramedy. I just watched that fucking movie not that long ago. No way! What's her connection to it? uh, She plays a small character. I can't remember what the name was there. She was actually uncredited, but she's, she's a small character nonetheless in the film. It's actually a pretty good movie, and reading about that today, I was kind of reflecting on my relationship with Will Ferrell, and and I probably need to rewatch that at some point it's, soon. I rewatched it. Um, geez, actually, it would have been like December twenty twenty now, but mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's, again, it's a a good movie again about somebody who's in a like a creative executive position and and how that affects somebody indirectly. So there's two other characters that I want to talk about uh, specifically. So the mistress, Carla, Carla is another prominent character in the beginning. She maybe fades a little bit into the background for a a bulk of a film, but becomes more important, I guess a little bit later in the film. They've been having an affair that's been implied to be about seven years, several years at this point. She's also married. She's also married. She was invited to the uh, shooting location where Guido's hanging out, but he kind of keeps her separate in a separate hotel. He's trying to keep like a low-key thing going on there. kind of get the sense that she's just kind of a diversion for him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Like he's stressed out and he needs to unwind. Exactly. His mistress. And I think that's exactly it. I think you nailed it there. Uh, So Carla's played by Sandra Milo. And again, another actor who appeared in another Fellini film, Juliet of the Spirits. So Fellini definitely has a number of actors, probably similar to like some of the modern day directors that you and I really appreciate. That have their stable. Exactly. Yeah. The last character that I specifically want to highlight is Claudia Cardinale, uh, who plays Claudia in the film. She's the image of the perfect woman. Yes. Um, yes. That Guido is well after, cast. for in both like a personal and directorial sense. Like he's he's searching out this perfect woman to 
understand his relationship with women a little bit, I think, but he also wants the perfect women woman for his film because his film is a mirror of his life. His muse, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She only has a few minutes of screen time, really. Like, we see her at the beginning in some of the imagery and, and in one of his fantasies while they're at the spa, and then she makes an appearance later in the film in a more prominent role at that point in time. But Claudia Cardinelli is somebody who is extraordinarily famous in the Italian uh, film scene. She also went on to star in some really big Hollywood productions like The Pink Panther and Once Upon a Time in the West. Really? Yeah. uh, Very very prominent actor. That makes Um, sense. But she actually... So that was a period in the 60s. So in the 60s... In the 50s, she started to become more well-known. I think this film really puts her on the mark as being absolutely beautiful and stunning. And then she moves over to Hollywood, does those big productions, does a few other productions. Realizes at this point in time that she prefers the way Italian and French cinema is filmed and the direction of them. And became really frustrated and jaded with how Hollywood treated people and actors. Should we talk about the unique way that... Uh, Italian movies were shot at We the will time? talk about that in effects and filming. Okay, Don't worry. We we've got a spot for that. <laughs> okay. Um, and so she actually returned to Italian and French cinema in the 70s. And so she was very prominent in, in films like that later in her career. But she does have a, a little mark on Hollywood still. Um, but probably more known for in her international roles. I will say that all the women in this movie are like extraordinarily beautiful in the way that women in the 60s were. Yeah. Very almost regal looking in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And that also is part of what Guido wants to surround himself with, right? Absolutely. Like he's he's on that search for that that perfect woman. And and so to see women who are naturally very beautiful, it kind of fits into that motif. On rewatch, mm-hmm. there are so many different moments where Guido is someone is demanding something of Guido and he's distracted by a pretty girl. Yeah. Like it almost happens like every five minutes. Like he's like, hmm. Like and, and again, that's kind of that distraction and and what's partially causing him to not make any progress on the this film. That's absolutely. highly important to his career and to the careers of everyone around him. You know, it's funny, um, before you and I started recording, I was telling you about this book I just read called The War of Art by a bloke named Stephen Pressfield. Hmm? which is all about the path an artist has to take in the different forces of resistance, uh, resistance with a capital R, that can arise to halt your progress. And according to Mr. Pressfield, he, in his opinion, certain forms of addiction can be a manifestation of resistance. And he specifically points to love and sex as forces that can tie into resistance with a capital R. It is interesting how Guido's appetites seem to be distracting him from the work he really should be doing. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point. I have one friend in particular that I've had these kind of discussions before, and essentially a lot of addiction is actually manifestations of of mental health issues that are being undiagnosed and that a lot of addiction can be treated with with mental health treatments yeah. um, and that's and that's really what we should be focusing on but as a society maybe we're not quite there yet which is a little unfortunate but anyway 
moving back to a couple of characters here before Mm. we round things out so barbara Steele is the last character that i i wanted to quickly mention she's the english speaking woman who's uh in a relationship with one of the producers of the film i think his name's mario Yes. Older guy. Yes, exactly. Yes. And she's she's young and he's, like you said, older. And there's kind of some tension in their relationship there because she's very outgoing and wants to dance. And he's he's older and he's like worried that his heart's going to explode, <laughs> essentially. Which, uh, judging from the way he's sweating in certain things... That's a very fair concern. Absolutely. Um, So not necessarily a prominent character in the film, but very interesting uh, English film actor known as the queen of all scream queens uh, for her (laughs) roles in many horror films in the 60s and 70s. Wow. So very prominent actor. Uh, She had... She had starring roles in the movies Black Sunday, The Pit, and The Pendulum, and David Cronenberg's Shivers. Seriously? Yeah fucking cronenberg yep has a cronenberg connection there wow good Uh, for her yeah um (laughs) otherwise there's there's a lot of different actors in the film and and characters like it's pretty ensemble cast i would say i'd say um it's it's pretty chaotic and i think that is the point is to have all of these different uh people that you would expect on a film set like the producers the actors special effects people the significant others of these people the commandador or however you say that exactly um and then we also have like other prominent characters from guido's past that we see more in dream sequences or in in his fantasies like his his parents make an appearance in his dream sequences la saragina which is a very influential figure from guido's past um the woman who lives out in the uh old war bunker we'll talk about her character in a bit more detail i think we can call her a prostitute yes she is a prostitute (laughs) yes and so that's very important to his his ideas of of women and relationships as well and then so that's something we'll have to dive into yeah. Um, looking at the cast and looking at the their filmographies, this is a, a really kind of a who's who of Italian acting in the 50s and 60s. Like, there's a lot of very important people, which makes the film itself kind of interesting as well, because there would have been a lot of draw for some of these actors at the time. Absolutely. So I think that's everyone I wanted to talk about. Is there any other characters that we should maybe bring up at this point in time? The character that I kind of found the most interesting was actually Rosella. The friend? The friend. She isn't in the movie much, but just to clarify for the listeners, so Louisa goes to visit Guido, and she brings Enrico, the aforementioned nice guy, Yep. and her friend Rosella with her. And it's not super focused on, but it seems as though Rosella and Guido are almost closer than... Guido and his wife. Yes, they're able to speak more candidly to each other. Yeah, like I had assumed she was uh, his sister-in-law just for the fact that she introduces herself as a Guido's managing supervisor right. at one point. And the commentador makes an... I believe the commentador calls her a sorceress and says that one touch and she knows what you're thinking. Right, yes. And she makes a very prominent reappearance in his harem scene i don't know if we want to save that till when we talk about that scene in more detail yeah i think we save that to spoilers okay Um, spoiler note then but again not in the movie it's not a sexual relationship but there is a weird intimacy between those two that i found very interesting 
Yeah, I, I, I thought their relationship was really interesting as well, especially in the fact that they could speak so candidly to each other. Mm-hmm. And she could say things about their relationship and he could comment on them without like it feeling like she had the she had the upper hand on him maybe but it didn't feel like she was going to abuse her role necessarily she was more there to see how things played out and provide support to her friend louisa it seemed as though she seemed to understand guido maybe better than louisa and also maybe better than guido himself and and she was able to speak to him like they were able able to have a more like realistic conversation than Louisa and and him could like they could connect a little easier almost yeah so let's move into who this movie is for um, we've talked about your relationship with the movie because I think that's important to highlight the fact that it, it, you found out about this movie in film school um I'm actually was really interested to hear that there was quite a a split amongst viewers at that time about who really appreciated the film and how didn't. yeah and how a lot of people that you watch this movie with didn't appreciate this movie mm-hmm. um the the easy the easy group of people that are going to appreciate this movie are the creators and the creative personalities like that that's what this movie yes. is a love letter towards yes um is is people who have that who are in creative executive roles who are like writers like yourself mm-hmm. um who are maybe creating content online like like you and me are both right now it's it's really interesting to see someone struggling with that kind of writer's block and how it's adversely affecting not only their work but maybe also their personal relationships how everything's intertwined how the pressure of having all of these people like all of these expectations on you to produce something and produce it on time and to not let anybody down because there's all of these different people that have their own expectations for the creative work that you're providing and preparing essentially yeah i would add to that that's a great point i would add to that though that you have to really love cinema in order to appreciate this movie i think so as well i don't yeah you have to really like you have to really respect and appreciate not only the art form but the history of the art form yeah and i don't think this movie is for everyone i think if i'm being completely honest this might be out of every movie that we've ever done on the podcast the most narrow group of people that i would recommend this to because it it's a very specific group of people that are going to enjoy this i was thinking on the way here this movie is almost like a work of literature yes in the sense that it's very dense and i guess it's kind of like you know if you look at your relationship as a viewer to a movie it's like a relation it's similar to a relationship in the sense that there's a take and a give right Hmm. you've got some movies like disney movies marvel movies that like they're here to please they aim to please and they're you know you just have to sit back and be catered to there are other movies that are a little more challenging that you maybe have to meet halfway. And then there's these kinds of movies where you really have to bend over backwards to right. like pan for gold almost and find those hidden subtleties. So if you're going to watch this movie, I would almost say 
take a notepad with you and like <laughs> no seriously and like don't be afraid to like rewind and watch certain scenes multiple times right like you have to really you have to really work for this movie yeah i don't know that a lot of modern audiences are going to appreciate putting in that work i don't know that i appreciate putting in that much work <laughs> and that's a good point yeah um i actually got into a discussion with someone online about the movie this week um so okay. there was a post on reddit about uh a top 100 movie list okay um and eight and a half actually appeared around number 10 um really and so i commented on the post about uh how i don't know if i had the best relationship with the movie i don't know if i fully understood it or or if i fully enjoyed the film and actually somebody commented back to me and said that this really shouldn't be the first fellini movie that i should watch um huh so they said it's it's very meta in the sense that it's the eight and a half film in his filmography. It's semi auto autobiographical. Uh, it's 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 him outlining his approach to movies and his personal struggles as well. Like both of those aspects come are ripped from his own life and his own life experiences. And so to understand and appreciate the film itself a little bit, you have to dive into his prior filmography and those are pretty well-regarded movies themselves like la dolce vita which i mentioned previously is a very acclaimed film i might be wrong about this i think that might be roger ebert's favorite movie i think Um, i read that somewhere you might not be wrong i can't remember it off the top of my head but yeah so so maybe this wasn't the perfect movie for you and i to start off in here but um uh, at the end of the day, I think I am glad I watched it. Yes. Um, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I I don't know if I can recommend this to any more people beyond that. I feel as though this might just be the kind of movie that's more fun to talk about yes. than it is to actually experience. Yeah. And that in and of itself, that sometimes can be a good um something that's worth doing and worth having that kind of conversation i remember when the movie joker came out a couple years ago and how there was a lot of discourse after the film and a lot of discussion like you could get into an hour or two discussion with the people that you walked out of the theater seeing that movie with because there was a really big social there was something there yeah there, there was a lot of social implications to the film and and discussing it was almost more enjoyable than watching the film itself because joker's a phenomenal movie oh yeah but oh my god does it unsettle you and just like make you feel awful it's quite the experience and you know what in this day and age when like you know We've got all these fucking streaming services and all this, you know, we're living in the golden age of television and like all the algorithms that are catering content. Having a movie that you can really talk about is kind of a special thing. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's one of my favorite things. And that's why this podcast was created. Oh, because hey. <laughs> Jason and I wanted to have these kinds of discussions. Yeah. Uh, we already were having these discussions. And you and I have had these discussions since the beginning of time on movies that we've watched. Like we've literally been discussing movies, you and I, for probably the better half of 20, 25 probably years. since we were in diapers. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so... I can appreciate the film in that regard, and maybe this is a film that you watch with other people who are interested in film, like you watch it in a group setting like that so that you can discuss it afterwards and discuss how different things made you feel 
I will say I was significantly better disposed towards this movie the second time around. That's the other thing that I read online as well, is that people said you really do have to get multiple viewings in of the film to really appreciate and understand everything. And looking back, I think when we get into the spoiler section, we can talk about just understanding where things are going actually helps to contextualize the first half of the film. Yeah, and I will say, no no spoilers, but the first half is a lot more challenging than the second half. I found right. that on my first watch. Like, it would be my second watch. My first watch was like 11 years ago. Yeah, but your, that, your first modern rewatch. My first modern rewatch, yeah. Um, the second half, when Louisa shows up, that's when the film really kind of like, picked up for me yes i would absolutely agree that's uh, there's a pretty stark difference in the film and the direction of the film and the direction of the plot even mm-hmm. um the plot it almost feels as aimless as the film uh yeah. <laughs> like it just kind of wanders for the first half um and that's there's a point behind that but that is the sense that i kind of got like the film is is really good at evoking the senses that the film wants you to feel essentially it's effective yes it's effective yeah it's very effective when do you think is the ultimate time to watch something like this i i almost wonder if if watching this maybe a little bit later in life or if you're struggling creatively with something if if this is a good watch at that point in time to get a feeling of like of connection with something I think you're really going to connect there if you're having your own personal writer's block, whether it be in whatever aspect of your life. I think you and I right now are probably the right age to experience this movie. Yeah. I don't even know, like not even necessarily a creative creatively, I mean, but like in the sense that I feel like getting a little older, a little grizzled, I mean, I'm making it sound like you and I are fucking 50, (laughs) but like, I think just having some life experiences under your belt will make you better disposed towards this movie. Yeah, I think so too. I was just thinking about that, like that, like being in your 30s and 40s is really the prime age of where you're going to understand Guido, the character, because Guido doesn't have all the answers. And that's very important to the plot of the film is that it's somebody who's clearly at the top of their game but is very much struggling with with just continuously being creative and i actually saw you post something the other day Uh about being a writer and about like when you know that you're a successful writer like when oh, you know i know that, what you're talking about yeah, yeah and yeah. and it's basically like you never do like you always just assume was, that you're gonna be bad maybe like it that was, you might uh, not to clarify it was a screenshot from invincible a show i tried to get you into but i yeah. don't think it's stuck <laughs> but uh it's the care it's a younger guy mark being like when do i start when do i stop doubting myself as a writer and it's the older character omni-man being like that's the neat part you don't <laughs> yeah and i think this is a pretty good that quote in action essentially that's a very i never noticed the connection yeah but yeah you're and right, i had you're a good right. chuckle to myself when you posted that because i was like that's kind of what this movie is is somebody who's clearly at this point um well regarded in the 
film space like yes he's gotten a pretty big budget for the film he's got all of these influential people and actors uh surrounding him and yet he's still struggling like it's not like you know, when you're in your young 20s, you assume that the people who are in executive positions have all their shit together. And <laughs> by the time you get to around our age, you realize that nobody has their shit together. You realize that everyone's kind of a fuck up. Yeah, and, and we're okay. all just kind of like trying our best to fail upwards. Um, <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, you know. You know, to me, um, for those of you who don't know, again, that's all of you, I (laughs) fancy myself a creative person, and, but to me, um, what really, you know, Roger Ebert, I didn't really read any reviews or watch any video essays about this movie, because I didn't want it to taint my own opinion. Yeah, that's valid. But I did read Roger Ebert's review, because, you know, film student, that's what we all did. It's part of the curriculum. He said in his review that this was the... I think he said it was this was the most comprehensive movie about filmmaking in existence. And to be honest, I don't really agree because I think what this movie is more about, more so than the creative film stuff, I feel like the real heart or the real focus of this movie is Guido's relationship with women. And I'm, I'm going to be honest, that's where I struggled more with okay. uh, and in my enjoyment of the film is in his relationships with women and i don't want to get too much into my review but i appreciated the film from the artistic uh struggles a little bit more it's interesting that like i'm you know i'm just gonna flex on you i'm probably <laughs> more creative than you oh absolutely but... you are i, I will agree <laughs> okay. I don't, that's not even debate <laughs> but uh <laughs> You're appreciating it for the artistic side, but me, as a creative person, I'm more like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy and women? Like, why can't he make relationships work? (laughs) Well, see, I agree with that as well. And, like, I had the same problem, but maybe, like, you maybe appreciated those problems, whereas I saw them maybe as faults to the film. Interesting. And we'll talk about that when we get into our reviews, I think. Okay, Uh, okay. We'll save it for that. We haven't, we've touched a little bit on when to watch in terms of, like, age, but... Like, when would you sit down and watch this? What is the ideal conditions for you to sit down? And honestly, watch this? this isn't like a um It's not a blockbuster. No. Honestly, you know, when I was in film school, I would go to the lab, get the movies from the library, I would sit down at one of the computers and I would play it and I again I would have a fucking notebook open in front of me and I'd be <laughs> taking notes the whole time. Like yep. this isn't a um what I'm about to say may do to service of the film, but I almost feel like this is more a film you study than just sit oh, back. Oh, I absolutely agree with yeah, you. Yeah. Like, this isn't like, this is a movie you watch in the fucking daytime. Yes. Like, this with, is an afternoon movie. With I coffee, agree. Not yes. with coffee, not with Guinness, which is what I'm drinking right now, by the way. Nice. Nice plug. <laughs> if we can get some sponsors, but. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a still a work in progress. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I said the same. Like, I thought, you know what, this is a, maybe a Sunday afternoon or even a Saturday afternoon movie to watch. Uh, you have to be ready to think. You have to be ready to pay attention and and let everything kind of wash over you and consider the imagery and, and what Fellini is trying to, trying to tell you by these different, like, dream sequences and fantasies and and all of that and and even the dialogue is is somewhat poetic and there's some interpretation involved in it yes and like if you see a loose thread don't be afraid to hit pause and pull on it yes like 
you know, this is a movie that really, again, like I said, uh, significantly de- better disposed on my second modern watch. And this is a movie that rewards persistence and intuition. And again, that that's another nail in the is this for everyone entertainment watch like this movie is barely for anyone uh, this movie is barely entertainment (laughs) but at the same time like it's it is almost like necessary viewing for creative individuals i think i don't know if it's necessarily necessary viewing for creative individuals but i think it's necessary viewing for anyone with a respect for the art form yeah that that's probably a better way to put it i i would agree with that Okay, let's do where to watch, and then we'll get into all the spoiler stuff. So right now, um, Eight and a Half is streaming on the Criterion channel, which is a streaming service that essentially restores and releases old movies. Um, that's where I actually watched Harakiri on um, uh. as well. They do a really great job with rendering the films. Like the film itself looks gorgeous. Uh, okay. Looks like really great in black and white like i've it, really it, it is a very well shot movie yeah exactly and i've i'm really starting to appreciate black and white film so that's where to watch it as always go to just watch the website that jason and i use to check out where movies are streaming it's like the greatest thing ever i don't know if you've used it yet or you if know we've plugged I, you on that but you want to know what i watched this fucking movie on where i rented it off youtube twice nice in the last week <laughs> you should so just bought it at that the point the fellini estate got ten dollars from me this week <laughs> and i hope they fucking appreciate it <laughs> nice all right so this is the point in time where yeah. i cut it off and say we've gone as spoiler free as possible and we're going to talk about the movie from a spoiler point of view and do a bit of a deeper dive into it and i usually say around now like if you're really interested in the film go check it out go watch it and then come back and and let's kind of have this conversation together i would say um for those of you listening despite how much shit we've talked Again, if you are creative or you do respect cinema, you do owe it to yourself to see this movie. Yeah. And so here's what I'm going to say here. And this is, I'm actually going to pose this as a question to you. Good. Do you think that it's better to know the backstory and and maybe what we're going to dive into a little bit here about the film and, and even knowing some of the spoilers maybe before you dive in? Like, is this a film that spoilers are going to negatively impact your perception of the film or or lessen your enjoyment or do you think thinking about all of this going in is actually going to help with your enjoyment a bit you know what considering how overwhelming that first hour and 20 minutes is especially to a modern viewer i think you're almost kind of better off knowing some stuff about fellini or, you know, even just listening to what we've just said. Because, again, I found my rewatch, I enjoyed the first hour and 20 minutes a lot more when I was knowing kind of what to look for. And I think I agree with you. And that might be, this might be the first film that I've ever 
thought about that at the spoiler cutoff mark. Uh, this was something I was thinking about this morning, actually, and I was like, wait a second. Do I actually recommend listening to the full episode and really getting that understanding of Fellini and what he had and the thoughts process he had going into the film and where this film creatively came from and and some of the other background information on on this? Would that have actually improved my enjoyment and understanding of the film beforehand? And I think it would have like I didn't I watched this going in knowing absolutely nothing about the film. And I think I did myself a little bit of a disservice in that. I went in barely remembering anything of this film, and I'm going to be honest, My on my first rewatch on Monday, my first modern viewing, let's say, I was sitting there staring at the TV with my roommate, thinking to myself, why the fuck did I pick this movie for my first appearance on VCR? <laughs> Don't worry, I had the same thought. Yeah, I was like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> That's okay. That's yeah. okay. I'm glad we did it. At the end of the day, I am glad we did it. I am glad we did too, but it was a tougher road. Yeah. So so that's what I'll say actually at this point in time then is if if you're even a little bit interested in the film, I really think that you want to stick around and and maybe understand what you're about to get into. This is the highest praise I've ever given anything ever, but like it's almost kind of like Knowing some background on Shakespeare plays before you read them. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost to your benefit. Exactly. It's almost like, consider this podcast like the annotations, almost. This is the context, bitch. Yeah, I agree. I think it's time to talk effects and filming. I think we start with that with the film. And... Maybe the background on where Eight and a Half creatively came from and the place that Fellini was creatively at this point in his film career. So Fellini himself had started with the concept of a person who was in a creative director position and they were struggling with some writer's block and he had the character maybe going somewheres for a couple weeks to kind of sort through his mess and and sort through this creative block that Get he away had from it all yeah exactly and that's that was the premise for the movie that's what he sold the movie on he didn't have a script written at that point in time he didn't have any more direction than that who are imitating life exactly <laughs> and that's exactly where this movie comes out of because he he was actually at the point in time when they started producing the movie they actually like he ordered the start to production he had signed on deals with the producers with the actors they had already like set the dates of when they were going to be doing filming they had sets constructed for the film all of these pieces were already starting to be made and and come together and Fellini didn't even have a plot yet he had no story wow he, he basically at that point didn't even know what guido did for a living like he he had the name and that was it um so he sold it just on his name alone more or less okay so they started they started all of this they get everything together and he struggles and he struggles for a couple months and then he starts writing a letter to the producer essentially saying that he had lost his film that basically there was nothing there and he would have to abandon the project ouch And while he was writing that, he was interrupted by one of the production people and was told, we need you to come out uh, of your room. 
come and celebrate the launch of eight and a half because they had the name at that point in time as well okay, so he he left the letter he went onto the set and then he had to do a toast in front of all of the cast and crew of the <laughs> film um and he said that he felt overwhelmed by shame i was in a uh, no exit situation i was a director who wanted to make a film he no longer remembers and lo and behold, at that very moment, everything fell into place. I got straight to the heart of the film. I would narrate everything that had been happening to me. I would make a film telling the story of a director who no longer knows what film he wanted to make. That is very serendipitous, actually. Yeah. It's very beautiful in a way. It contextualizes the movie so much. And not knowing that going in, I think, hurt my viewing. And and I can appreciate the film a lot more in that sense. Like... This is what I knew going into the film. I knew it was an Italian film. I yes. knew it was very critically acclaimed. And Wikipedia told me it was a comedy. I would not say. I would really have benefited from someone telling me it was a comedy before my first viewing. I. But here's the thing, though. Is it's a comedy, but I don't know if all of the comedic aspects... I, if I fully understood the comedic aspects of the film. You know what? Just jumping ahead a bit. Yep. I will say that on rewatch, I noticed that this movie has a viciously critical, a viciously self-critical, subtle sense of humor. Yes. But you have to look for it. Let's talk about like how the film was... Filmed? How the film, yeah, how the film was filmed like audio-wise. Um, audio-wise, especially. Yeah, exactly. So most Italian films during this period had a very unique approach to filming and how audio was recorded. They actually, on most Italian sets, didn't record the audio while they were filming scenes. And instead, they just dubbed over entire scenes afterwards. Yep. And that's something that if you've seen old spaghetti westerns, you might be oh, used to. Oh, yeah. Because in a spaghetti western, like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, there's different actors coming from different areas of the world who speak different languages. And so they just dub everything over because you might have Clint Eastwood speaking English, but then you have the other main character speaking Italian and a third character speaking Spanish. And they're all speaking in their native tongue, their lines. But it's, later on, they dub that over into the language they want it to be. It's a real Tower of Babel situation. Yeah, it's but. really fascinating. Um, it that seems preposterous nowadays, but it really kind of made sense at the time. Especially for Italian cinema, like that was oh yeah, it, that was such a mainstay feature. It was it was a legitimate feature of Italian films, and Fellini almost I would say was a master. At that because what he would do is rather than just uh have his dialogue and have each of the actors saying their dialogue and then dubbing it over after he actually used it as a feature in his own directing and writing because yeah. he wouldn't have all of the lines fully thought out at the time that he was recording, like a lot of the film's dialogue was written during post-production. That's, I believe I also read somewhere that he would play music while he was directing. And that I think that final scene that we'll get to eventually, I think he actually extended it because he wanted it to kind of almost be in like harmony with the music. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's why 
a uh, few people online noted that there was almost like a a dancing rhythmic movement to a lot of the actors because there's that backdrop of that while you're acting a scene. That's it's a, like when a good classical song comes on that you love and you just can't help but move or sing along with shake it. Shake your ass. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the hotel that they filmed at and just the, the set pieces in general are absolutely beautiful. Like they filmed at, I believe, the Grand Hotel in Romini, which is a five-star hotel in Italy that uh, Fellini grew up around. And so huh. it's, it's pretty famous for uh, being a functional piece in his films. He uses it a couple times, I believe. Interesting. I don't know. I, the The set design of the film, like, I really appreciate that. That was maybe okay. one of the highlights of, of the film for me is how gorgeous everything looked. It was, uh, as I said earlier, it was a very well shot movie. The only other piece that I wanted to discuss the effects in filming, and I don't, I don't know if you have any other points after this, is the way the movie ends. I think this is probably what we talk about uh, or where we talk about the end of the movie. The original end of the movie had them... Guido and Luisa leaving together for a train that's bound for Rome. And at the end, he sees all of the characters from the film on the train together as they're entering a tunnel, essentially. The scene that comes out in the movie about everybody kind of dancing around the set of the spaceship was actually something that they had filmed originally just for promotional purposes. Right, right. And then essentially one of the script writers said to Fellini, you know, I think that this actually works better as an ending because the train sequence is almost implying suicide at the end of the film. That's actually yeah. a, a tool that other filmmakers and writers have used in the past to imply suicide. Is, I thought is the a train, train going into a tunnel just was used to imply sex. <laughs> no, seriously. I think you that's... know what <laughs> we will. Yeah, it was North by Northwest. Yes. <laughs> that there was that at the end. So he found afterwards, he decided on that as a more suitable ending. Let's discuss the ending a little bit. Okay. Is the ending on the onset there, is that a dream sequence or is that reality or is it maybe a little bit of both? I made a joke to you before we started recording that I thought the movie got a little stoned towards the end. In I read this in Roger Ebert's review. I know that a lot of critics at the time complained that it was difficult to tell the difference between reality and dreams. Right. Roger Ebert said in his review that he found it very easy to tell the difference. Right. And I agree with Roger Ebert up until the last half hour. Because I feel like in the last half hour, shit just gets bananas. Yes. There's a scene where he's watching... Vito is watching screen tests of actresses. Yes, and, and that is one of my favorite scenes the whole movie. Yeah, and he's being wildly uncooperative, as always. And I, I forget who it is, but somebody gets up, walks into the aisle, and just hangs himself. And it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, okay, wait, what? And then it just, nobody addresses it, they move on. Right. So, yeah, that final ending is Okay, it's clearly a dream sequence because his dead parents show up. Yes. And however, does he reconcile with Louisa in real life? Do we see do we see like even though this is a dream sequence, is there a reconciliation there that they have at the end that's incorporated in that that happens in reality? That's my question. I don't know. And I can't really 
It felt as though can I can we get into spoilers a little? Oh no, we're totally in spoilers. Oh, Talk okay, as much as you great, want. Great. In the penultimate scene, he gets dragged to set to do a press conference. He panics, he crawls in the table, and he fucking shoots himself. Yes. And then we hard cut to Which is obviously a dream sequence. Obviously a dream sequence. We hard cut to laborers taking down the set. Guido's standing there. The producer's there. He's kind of like you know, he's apologetic. He's like, oh, well, maybe the next one. And then suddenly out of nowhere, he just grabs a megaphone and he starts directing. And all these people just show up. Right. Like his dead parents, all the characters from the movie. And he, like, he suddenly, you know, how Guido got his mojo back. He's suddenly directing everybody and he looks very lively. So the implication is maybe that by finally admitting that he's done with this project and he can't do it. He's unburdened himself and his creative juices are flowing in ways they haven't flown in a long time. And how meta is that with what we just talked about with how this film even came to be? Yeah. And he just, he suddenly just tells everyone to start fucking dancing and they all dance. I don't know. Does he reconnect with Elisa? I don't know. And that's fair. I don't think that's a question that we can answer at the end. In my opinion, I think it does. I think that's Mir's life. Uh, Like, it's obvious at this point that him and Louisa have a pretty deep relationship, especially... You know, he's cheated on her in the past. Oh, yeah. She, she's she's aware of those situations, but she's still with him. There's obviously a very deep connection between the two of them for her to be able to forgive him of that. And it's a question of whether or not he maybe can forgive himself and move on and be a better person and stop cheating. That What really notable is I don't think after... Uh, the scene where they're at the cafe and his mistress, yes, Carla Carla. walks in. I don't think she appears after that, right? Other than maybe in the screen testing footage. Maybe. You know, I'm not the first person to point this out, but Carla really does kind of just fall off the movie in the second half. But is that, I wonder if that's actually intentional like i wonder if that is him starting to break away from that creative block and stopping with using his own personal indulgences like he's he's starting to cut himself off and he's starting maybe to move more towards his creative outer space maybe is the implication almost that louisa his wife is his muse and by having these affairs he's almost kind of cheating on his muse or doing his own creativity a disservice is that almost maybe the hidden implication that's yeah that's kind of what i'm i'm wondering out loud is i'm picking up what you're putting down yeah like you were saying like uh, the addictions are essentially used as as a crutch um to distract yourself from what's really important and and letting yourself move forward is is him weaning himself off of her and her not having any more role in the film a sign that he is moving towards that that creative conclusion that kind of almost divine union yeah exactly with his own muse well on that note carla who's very, the actress who played her did a really good job, but she is characterized to be a fucking idiot. Like, <laughs> yeah. no, like she mentions, <laughs> there's one scene I, I actually really appreciated on rewatch. 
she's like oh i read a really funny donald duck the other day i'm like seriously (laughs) (laughs) yeah guido like and i think even louisa when she confronts guido says what do you even talk about yeah so we are kind of talking with themes kind of in combination with effects and filming here so we i actually want to pivot a little bit into the Freudian the Freudian themes and and the personal struggles the relationships because we're already talking about it we're kind of yeah uh already kind of referencing some things and some scenes um so this was something that I was just reading about before we started recording okay is Fellini's relationship with Freud and with psychology is in the filming of La Strada in 1952 this was actually his first bout of clinical depression like he he got really clinical severe clinical depression at near the end of filming that film so he started having these discussions with his wife his wife recommended that he go and see a therapist so he actually did some work with a fruitian psychoanalyst named emilio servadio so he has experienced some of that in his personal life and okay. and, and okay. starting to research into those concepts. A few years later, he actually, and this is like the late 50s, he actually uh, started researching into the psychoanalyst ideas of Carl Jung, which Young, is Jungian. Yeah. And so he actually, in the early 60s, started reading his autobiography and was experimenting with LSD at that point in time. Of course he was. So even those aspects of the film are definitely mirrors of his own life and his own relationships with people. You know, his parents aren't in the movie much, but they do show up occasionally. Um, Yes. He has that really weird dream sequence early in the movie where... He's at a graveyard and his father's there and his father's just like vaguely disappointed in him. Yeah. He says like, he says something like they're in like kind of like a mausoleum and his father's like, I wanted the ceiling higher. Can you take care of this? And then like, you know, he's helping his father into his father's own grave. And he says like, how are things with Lisa? And he's like, we're fine. And he's like, ah, you two are my pride and joy. So that almost kind of reveals a subconscious guilt and then his mother shows up and she kisses him on both cheeks very italian and then all of a sudden like she sticks her tongue down his throat yeah make out a little and then she pulls back and suddenly it's his wife mm-hmm. which is the first time we actually meet louisa in the movie yeah and i'm just sitting there like what and then the dream sequence ends just again about his relationship with women there's two very striking flashback sequences there's one when he's a little kid in his childhood home with his siblings and he's they're all just bathing in a cauldron of wine, which I guess Italians do. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, what? And then my roommate, Pedden, the aforementioned Pedden, he's like, this is the most Italian thing I've ever seen. And I said, yeah, I know. And then, you know, he's being like wrapped in like white linen and carried to bed. And then later on during the famous harem scene, I guess we can just talk. This is yeah, no, we, to, yeah. Let's just fully, dive into it. Yep. Like, so there's a the the most probably the most iconic scene from this movie is later on. It's a dream sequence where Guido walks into his childhood home, and all the women he slept with or wanted to sleep with are there, hmm. and he has his own personal harem to attend to. 
And the deal is they all cater to him hand and foot. And once they turn 30, they have to go upstairs. Yes, to just which w- mirrors Leonardo DiCaprio. A yeah, few years I, older, but... <laughs> yeah, I guess Guido was a slightly better man. But, uh, and Louisa is kind of like, almost kind of like the headmistress, but she's this very like, in the dream sequence, she's a very dutiful housewife who just is cleaning floors and like you know, laughing at all this stuff he does, which is a very far cry from how Louisa is in real life. Yes. Louisa, I actually really liked Louisa. Like, she's very stone-cold intellectual. Yeah, I liked her character as well. Yeah, I would have asked her for her number if I was there back then, (laughs) but... um, You would have been the nice guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably, but... uh, (laughs) Yeah, so Guido's being catered to by all these women, and... In the harem scene, he's being bathed the same way he was being bathed as a kid. Right. And they wrap him in white linen, and these women kind of carry him around Mm -hmm. in the dream sequence, just like when he was a kid. So they're like, you know, it's almost kind of like this really preposterous image of being, like, catered to by this sort of, like, ideal wife, mother, consuming figure. But what's interesting is going back to... I think her name's Rosella. Yeah. The his wife's friend. She's actually in the harem as well. <laughs> and while he's being bathed by all these fucking women, he looks up and it's almost kind of like the fuck are you doing here? Yeah. And she just kind of says something effective like I'm just seeing how far how deluded you are. Like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or she almost she makes a point. She's like I'm the cricket on your shoulder, Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. She's like which is again something I really admired about this movie, especially on rewatch is how like viciously self-critical it is oh absolutely of itself and of guido Mm -hmm. yeah and as an extension of fellini as well yes absolutely that's part of what makes this movie feel so personal pivoting a bit there's one scene i really liked and i wrote down this quote there's a scene early in the movie where guido meets with his friend a critic slash writer who has reviewed his script and they go for kind of a walk in this little place they're staying at. And his critic gives him his notes, which is just, On first reading, it's evident that the film lacks a central conflict, a philosophical premise, if you will, making the film a series of gratuitous episodes, perhaps even amusing due to their ambiguous realism. One wonders what the author's point was. To make us think? To scare us? From the start, the action reveals an impoverished poetic inspiration. Forgive me, but this might be the most pathetic demonstration ever that cinema is behind all other arts by 50 years. The subject matter doesn't even have the merits of an avant-garde film while possessing all of its shortcomings. Here are my notes. I doubt they will be helpful. (laughs) (laughs) And this is within the first 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah. So that kind of sets you up for what you're in for. And it's really fascinating because it's pointing out the flaws and it like it's again a reflection of the film within the film however Fellini uses those as like the selling (laughs) features of the film essentially it's it's a movie without a whole lot of plot like it's more of a, a character piece and a a thought piece a a a look into the mind of the person Guido and his struggles both personally and professionally and there isn't like 
a driving any driving plot point there isn't a conflict that he must like rise to the occasion other than to get out of his writer's block it's almost a film that's kind of trying to figure itself out as it goes along i fully believe that there's in that same scene we get our first glimpse of this claudia that this claudia like the ideal woman right And then in the next scene, Guido's at the train station waiting for Carla, and he's reading his friend's notes. And his friend's notes are basically like, what the fuck is the point of this ideal woman? Like, what does this even mean? And he crumples it up and throws away. Yeah. So it's it's a very self-reflexive, self-critical, almost self-hating movie. Yeah, this movie it absolutely is. kind of hates itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it wants you to hate yourself, too. <laughs> yeah, I, that's what all great art should do. <laughs> I So I actually had a question about a scene, the opening scene, with him trapped in the car, and there it's a very uh, visceral scene. Like there's, Unsettling. Yeah, it's unsettling. Like, there's the bus full of people all, like, standing there without heads um, because they're cut off with the windows. Yes. There's, like, some just weird imagery going on in some of the other cars, and this man is trapped in this car Being... trying to break out. Yes. Um, and then the second part of this is he floats away and then is pulled back down to Earth. I understand the dream sequence part of him being pulled back down to earth. It's like yeah. the the film crew is trying to like ground him and get him back into like reality and, and get the the process flowing again. Like he can't just float away. He can't just avoid the responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Do you do you understand the first bit in the car? Because I, I haven't really zeroed in on the meaning behind that. The what I was kind of thinking is we open to a shot of all these cars and. It's a traffic jam. So that obviously represents some kind of block. And then like white steam starts steaming from like his car and he starts kicking at the door, kicking at the windows, trying to get out. And all these people are just kind of watching. Right. I almost kind of feel like it might be almost a metaphor for cinema itself in the sense that it's like they're looking through car windows watching him suffocate like there's something kind of voyeuristic about it interesting kind of yeah and he's trying to get out and nobody can help him and like he has to do it himself yeah or it's almost maybe like he's suffering for almost maybe their amusement right maybe it's almost a metaphor for like it's almost like an accusation to the people around him kind of yeah that's what i got from it but interesting but then he gets out and he floats away and then again he's pulled back to earth right there's also a very quick shot of a much older man preying on a younger woman during that scene which there's lots of old men with mistresses young mistresses in this movie so that's kind of clever foreshadowing yeah, and it's also maybe again a a fear, a self fear that Guido has of like I'm getting older. At what point do I become the old creepy man preying on young women? There is a going back to the harem scene. So, like we mentioned earlier, the deal is you turn thirty, you get decrapiot out of there, and um, one of the. W- 30 year old women rebels and they all start kind of like a riot and they start hurling accusations at him and one of them was you think you're this young man you think you're still this young man and you could do all this stuff right right and then he grabs a whip and starts like cracking the whip at all these women and you know (laughs) 
Louisa actually in the fantasy makes the point like, oh, he does this every night. Like he just yeah. he just wants to feel powerful again. Uh, I'm glad we talked about that because I I needed that more filled out in my mind that, that I didn't I needed to make sense of that with somebody. It's it's a tough one. Let's move into score quickly okay nino rota was the person who scored the film scored many other of fellini's films they collaborated together a lot nino is most well known for scoring the original godfather films so (laughs) kind of an important composer yeah in cinematic history holy shit um i would say the godfather if eight and a half is on the top 100 list making the top 10 list of greatest films of all times i can almost guarantee the godfather is in that top 10 as well so to have three films composed in probably commonly known as like the greatest films of all time is a feat all on its own that's i am impressed yeah good job the score itself was really great like it's a classical score that fits well with the scenes like it I'm going to note the scene specifically where they're at the spa kind of early on when he's talking to that critic and getting that feedback. The There's the... Yeah, and that... It's kind of a uh, chaotic scene and... And there's a lot happening. Like we get all of the people going up to get the spring water or or whatever they're doing the at the spot. water or something. Yeah, and there's a lot of movement. It's like a very like uh, fluid kind of scene. There's there's kind of like yeah. orderly chaos here. But I think that it's almost a little bit of foreshadowing for things to come because that's also the scene where all of the different people from the film are starting to kind of come into the the movie and and are starting to make their appearances known to guido like that's when the one producer with the the young mistress uh joins them and that's when the critic is there and his imagery of the ideal woman this is a very chaotic scene with a lot of people and a lot of things happening and i think that the song actually did a really great job of like preparing me for all of that going off what you said earlier yeah there is kind of a dancing quality mm-hmm. a lot of the scenes with guido shrugging off his crew like the camera kind of pivots around and you get almost all these people kind of appearing and disappearing out of frame it's very interesting but overwhelming yeah but interesting yeah and so i think that the music is does a very good job of kind of keeping that pace and and pushing that pace throughout the film Mm, that's a good point yeah it's not music that you're gonna like necessarily it's gonna stick with you like it's not like thematic like jaws or something like that although i have been humming the like like the last week yeah it's Uh, it's a good one otherwise yeah that's that's kind of my piece on that let's talk legacy so the film itself is incredibly famous like this is probably the most famous italian movie of all time uh, or up there like or most critically acclaimed italian movie of all time Mm -hmm. um it's inspired a number of future directors since so the directors that i was reading about who most often cite this film specifically but also just other works of Fellini in general are tim burton terry gilliam and david lynch oh that makes a lot of fucking sense yeah all three of (laughs) especially that last one david lynch for sure yeah i'm going to note here and this might be spoilers to my personal review those are three directors that I do not necessarily gel with Ooh, often. So shots fired. I, I, I read that and went, 
I understand where I was in this movie now. <laughs> maybe this movie wasn't for Blake. <laughs> yes, maybe this movie was not for Blake. Should we should we jump into personal reviews? We're getting there. We're getting okay, there very okay. soon. The other kind of notes that I was going to make was that this often is a film that you're going to see in top 100 lists, especially for critics. Um, and most recently, like I said, I was I can't remember where the article was. Uh, I was a bit older anyway, and it was around that 10th place. So very important film in film history. Using the blend of fantasy and dream sequences and what's real and what isn't is a device that Fellini maybe popularized and and I already referenced Joker in this there are scenes of Joker that you don't know are actually fantasy scenes until maybe a little bit later in the film and it, they get recontextualized it, yeah. yeah and it blends those very well and and the recontextualization is is not only important to like something like the Joker but it is important to this film as well like like you said upon rewatch of your rewatch you understood the first hour a lot more yes the other thing the connection that was obvious to me that i wasn't sure if there was anything more there was the name eight and a half um so quentin tarantino more my style director uh (laughs) more of a contemporary yeah the hateful eight being his eighth film uh, <laughs> I never made that fucking connection. That's the only connection there. I I looked into things a little bit more. I think other than the fact that it's a little self-referential to the filmmaker's career um, in the nature of the name, I don't think there's any other connection that you could put. Well, it makes sense because Tarantino is a very... Um, he's a filmmaker with a very distinct personal brand. Yes. In the same way that maybe Fellini would have been a filmmaker with a very distinct voice back in his time. Yeah. And actually on that note as well, I've been listening to Quentin Tarantino's new podcast sure uh, of recent and really funny this week. They were talking about a movie and Quentin Tarantino said, well, they were talking about this movie. I don't appreciate when directors add Freudian elements to their film. And I went, you and I are on the same page, my friends. <laughs> well, you know, just, just to throw this in, just to throw this in modern psychology. I read a quote once that modern psychology regards Freud the same way astrophysicists regard Isaac Newton. Interesting. Like a lot of his theories and practices have been largely discredited. But in the 60s, he would have been the new hotness. Oh, absolutely. He would have been Vogue. Very interesting that one of my favorite directors all of all time obviously had an influence on how my mind works into going into a movie and what I enjoy in film and what I might not enjoy in film. So I, I thought that that's my connection to this movie so if- is... I can appreciate films similar to the directors who have influenced me, and he would obviously be one of those directors. That's actually really funny that he would say that. Well, yeah, I mean, holy fuck, right? I mean... <laughs> yeah, and it, it was it was so funny because it was the episode that came out this week, and I listened to that and went, oh my god, that's hilarious, that, that is, connection. That is... Sequels, prequels, reboots, and then we'll get into our personal reviews and the partner factor. Cool. So, obviously no sequels prequels or reboots to the film um however there maybe are some i guess light reboots in the sense that the film itself has had some uh very definitive films that 
have taken the ideas or the themes of the movie and and repeated them. Yes. Um, some of those being Alex in Wonderland, which came out in 1970. Good one. All That Jazz, uh, Stardust Memories, which is Woody Allen. Hmm. There's also a musical adaptation that won an award in 1982 Holy was on Broadway. Fuck, this story would work so well as a musical. Yes, I think it absolutely would. And you and I have talked about my thought of converting Dune into a musical before. And I've said before, it has legs. (laughs) We should do it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's uh, it's actually called Nine. Ah. And so Guido is the only man in the play, and all of the rest of the actors are female in the the play. That almost, that makes way too much sense, actually. And it actually had a Broadway revival here in uh, 2003, which starred uh, Antonio Banderas as Guido. I think Antonio Banderas is probably too good looking to play Guido. And <laughs> that's and my critique. One other connection here. Um, okay. The play was made into a film in 2009 called Nine: The Live Adaptation. And it starred Daniel Day-Lewis as Guido. Okay, so let me break this down for those of you listening. There was a musical adaptation of a movie that was itself adapted into a different movie. Starring Daniel Day-Lewis. Very meta. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis, the like most like meta, like what's the what's the acting style where you like Oh method acting. Method acting, yeah, yeah. he's a method actor, like oh my god, that I would've... think that movie should have broken reality. <laughs> <laughs> it might have. Like, listen to who it stars. Daniel Day Lewis, Marion, uh Cotillard, Penelope Cruz, and Nicole Kidman. We should uh we should And do... Fergie. We <laughs> Fergie, are you fucking kidding me? Uh, mixed reviews on this one, apparently. We should do it on this podcast. Um, Maybe in a year or two. Maybe... I've got movies that are a little bit higher up on my list. Yeah, than that. fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. So that's it. I There's plenty of other material that you can go and look out if, if you've enjoyed this movie and want to see it done by a slightly different take or or in different contexts. That is, it's, it's like, you ever hear something so preposterous that you can't even laugh? <laughs> You're just kind of like, I can't even smile right Your now. Your brain is broken right <laughs> now. Like, you might not be able to continue on with the episode. Wrinkled my brain. Well, Get your shit together, because we're almost done. It's time for a personal review in the partner factor. Okay, um, you go first. Ah, uh, I want to hear your take. Okay, first. let's go. Because you have you have history with this film, and you've kind of talked a little bit more about your history and where you were. So yeah, refresh us again quickly. Your thoughts, eighteen year old. I'm in college for film. Yes, Michael. Okay, again, this movie is a bit of an old flame that I've reconnected with. I really, really liked it when I saw it in film school at 18. In fact, I think me and one other friend were the only people in our class that actually really enjoyed it. I remember really passionately defending this movie to people. Mm-hmm. So you invited me on your podcast, and I picked this movie straight out of the gate, and I said to you, I'm interested to see how I respond to this movie 11 years yes. later. All right, so uh, Monday night, we're recording this on a Saturday. I watched this on a Monday fucking hated the first hour it was really hard to sit through it was hard i will agree it was very very hard to sit through but once louisa showed up about halfway through i found the movie significantly picked up 
Yes. And then I decided to rewatch the movie just to kind of get my thoughts in order. And I will say that it benefits from a rewatch. I was significantly better disposed towards this movie on the rewatch of the rewatch. And having a relatively close rewatch together, like like within Within the week week, span, is is a very close rewatch rather than like a decade later. And I've said this already, but I'll say it again. When you rewatch it, you really can appreciate just how bitingly self-critical this movie is of itself. Right. Like, there are so many moments where, like, the film is, like, taking the piss out of itself, taking the piss out of Guido, using, like, these subtle visual metaphors to show, like I mentioned earlier, Guido wearing the rubber nose, showing, like, what a liar he is. Like, this is, if nothing else, this is a very self-aware movie. Yeah. This movie knows what it is. It knows what it's trying to accomplish. So, I guess to break it down, my personal review... This isn't an easy watch. No, I would absolutely agree with that. This isn't necessarily even a fun watch. (laughs) Which is an interesting way to describe a movie that you like. Because it sounds like you did enjoy it. If I went on a date last night and you said, how was it? It wasn't necessarily interesting and it wasn't necessarily fun. Yeah. (laughs) But I will say on my rewatch of the rewatch, I was very intellectually stimulated. And that's interesting, and that's something that... I don't know if that's where I go to the movies to, like, no. get that. And, however, like, there's stuff like Inception and and movies like The Prestige or, uh, like, I'm naming Chris Nolan movies, but yeah. just, like, stuff that conceptually is, is difficult and hard to wrap your mind around. The Joker being one of... Another one of those, where, again, like, I don't know if I... I definitely didn't come out of Joker feeling happy. Going um, going back to the metaphor I used earlier, this movie is the kind of movie... You have to be very giving with this movie. You have to kind of do most of the work yeah, in order to get enjoyment out of it. But there is enjoyment to be found if you're willing to put in the work. So so two questions for you, then, okay. based on, on that review. You also, you, wait, wait, wait. Do you want to hear my partner review? Uh, no, because I want to okay. ask these actually okay. in light of a few specifically first. Okay. Are you going to watch this movie again? Are you going to rewatch this? Can you see yourself being at a point in your in time where you want to rewatch this? I can see this being the kind of movie I watch maybe once a decade. Like maybe every 10 years, I'll be like, oh yeah, eight and a half. And, and seeing how it changes in your yeah. mind and, and how, how you relate to it? Because in 10 years, I'm... If I, my heart hasn't exploded out of my chest, I'll be almost 40, closer to Guido's age. Yeah. I may appreciate this movie a lot more or a lot less, okay. depending on where I'm at in my life. Okay, that's interesting. So my second question is, would this movie fit into a top 10, a top 20, or a top 100 list for you? A top 100. You think so? Okay. I think so. Interesting. I can acknowledge the ambition and the legacy and that sort of thing. Okay, now you. All right. I appreciated the movie. I I enjoyed the plot around the creator struggling with writer's block. Okay. I'm the exact same spot as you. I'm not sure I enjoyed the movie. I'm not sure no. I got enjoyment out of watching it. I think that it does a really great job of giving us a look at what the art of filmmaking is um, about the struggles and pressures one faces with deadlines, with 
producers and what the producers motivations are behind a film and what the actors motivations are behind the film and what the director is trying to achieve with the film and there's all of these they're almost conflicting at times it's almost a carnival at times it is it's absolutely and it's filmed at times to almost feel like a circus on set here and that that was by design so i really appreciate those elements of the film for what they've presented to me and i think that a rewatch would have done it justice to increasing my appreciation of everything not just the last like 45 minutes or so of the i film. almost feel like you need to watch it like three times yeah in a week and this is where i'm struggling a little bit because yeah i i don't know if if a movie that takes this much watching and this much forced like rewatching and and trying to like find context and all of that is necessarily for me no um and and i think that's something that a lot of people would struggle with is like i think the primary purpose for a lot of people to see a film is to to maybe be taken away from their lives for a couple hours and be entertained and see something that is often absurd or or not within the reality that they kind of can assume and and there is a lot of absurdist elements to this like the dream sequences and everything else but trying to understand the context behind all of that is is something that it's not easy no and that's that's gonna rub a lot of people the wrong way and i don't know if it rubbed me the right way either like as someone who's in their late 20s the plot, the, the subplot, the main plot about the confusion of of females and how to interact with women in your life, like again, it, it was it was very Freudian, like. I don't know. It was it was it was almost like juvenile and and like trying to understand this in the point of view of like a forty year old man. Like I, like maybe it's a sign of the times back then. And like you were saying, Freudian was like a very popular psychotherapy kind of person at that point in time, and and his thoughts and analysis of the human mind yeah and i don't know i don't know if it that that part holds up to me necessarily in today's viewing on and that's that's where i'm struggling to accept this movie for where it is basically i can understand that certainly yeah i wonder if in 10 years we'd have a different opinion and that, and that's where I'm interested. And I think to answer my own question, I think I will rewatch this. I'm okay. not sure when it'll be. I know it'll be most likely by myself because uh, unless you and I were to watch it together at some point in time, mm-hmm. because we'll talk partner reviews now. Like okay. Jess was not getting into this, and, no. and like <laughs> I kind of knew within the first like 30 minutes that this was not going to be a movie for Jess, and she kind of tuned out like by around then and just had like was not engaged not engaged not at all. participating like, and and i'm not shocked by that and no. like I, ca- I can't fault her for that either so it, it's gonna be something where it's me and you hanging out one sunday afternoon and you're like hey do you want to try watching eight and a half again and i'd be like yeah like i'm i'm kind of interested in seeing sure how how my mind might change on this and then you and i having an engaging discussion after that rewatch kind of thing mm-hmm. and that's the context that i could see myself watching that again in okay um let's hear 
Pedden's review. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, I do not currently have a partner, although I am reviewing applications. <laughs> um, but I do have a roommate, and people confuse us for a couple all the time. <laughs> <laughs> he, after about 20 minutes, he left the fucking room. <laughs> and that, you, know what, you know what word he used to describe this movie? Indulgent. That And you know what? That is a good way to describe yeah, it. And uh, like, he really hit the nail on the head. Yeah, and it's indulgent, but it's... The, there's a purpose behind that. Yeah. Um, like, and if you don't understand the full context, and, and again, I'm bringing up the context of it and everything that we've talked about over this episode, and if you don't understand all of that when it's coming in, like, you do kind of feel that, and you're you're it, it, it will rub you the wrong way. You know what he also said that I think was actually maybe potentially insightful? He said, um, you know, the only reason this is a classic is because it's old. If this movie came out today, we'd all hate it. And I went, huh. <laughs> like, I maybe, maybe not. I yeah, and that's where I think some of the like confusion over how to understand a female it would maybe rub people the wrong way in today's viewing I, world. Touching on so Carla, his young mistress, yep. she brings up her husband Luigi a couple times, and at one point she kind of pressures him into giving Luigi a job. Yes. And he kind of rolls his eyes like she's brought this up a hundred times. So like, you know, there is kind of this whole Me Too-y aspect to the movie mm-hmm. that probably wouldn't track in 2022. Like, right. it's not, okay, it's, his relationship with Carla isn't framed as like an abuse of power, but like in today's day and age, we'd probably be like, ugh, like, you know. He's an older director preying on all these young women. Like, this isn't okay. Like, he's clearly not worried about money, and he's clearly well-known and famous. So the fact that he's fucking all these girls is, it's, 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 there's a power deferential there that is not okay. Yeah. And yeah. if this movie were made, okay, so this was made into another this was made into a movie called Nine in 2009. Yep. If a movie called Ten came out in 2022, <laughs> Guido would much, much more clearly be framed as the villain. I absolutely agree with that, and I was yes. about to say that as well. I, I he think... would be much more unsympathetic. Absolutely. For good reason. For yeah. good reason. Yep. So, yeah, maybe if this movie came out today, I don't know that people, modern audiences accustomed to streaming would pick up what this movie's putting down yeah and, and there's also, gonna be a very niche group of people that we've already talked about who are going to get their enjoyment out of it and also this movie does pretty clearly have an important place in the history of cinema so yeah absolutely. if we took it out of 1963 and we put it in 2022 like you know the art form could potentially look a little different absolutely and and not every film has to hold up to today's standards because no. it's, it's every film is and every piece of art as well like what and any other medium is a representation of the times and yes. the people involved in those times so like i don't know jason and i've watched a handful of movies at this point in time yes. where we've said like hey th- this doesn't hold up to today's standards but you have to suspend i almost want to say suspend belief but suspend critique of of those elements because obviously 
It's, Obviously, today, we would not do certain things the way that they were done in 1960. You know what? And I'm just thinking about this now. It's almost like going back and watching the original Star Wars and putting yourself in the mind of a moviegoer from 1977. Oh, absolutely. And that's a part of what we try to do on the podcast is to contextualize things and talk about what was happening at the time. And we maybe didn't talk about it as much in this episode and more focused on the legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, no, we did. Never mind. Uh, my mind's a little bit all over the place right now but I'm, I'm thinking of the fruitian elements and how you and i you and i already mentioned that basically at that time he was like the hot in thing but since then maybe some of his ideas have been uh countered and critiqued into oblivion i as a personal note i once asked my therapist if i had an oral fixation which is a freudian term and she almost like she almost body slammed me out of the room. <laughs> she was like, ugh, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, nice. So I get it. I get it. I have a final thought that we can end on if you want sure. me to share it. Okay. Yeah. And then. Okay. <clears throat> so for those of you listening, um, these are our notes. I doubt they have been helpful. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, nice. <laughs> um,. So before we wrap up quickly, just want to mention again that the draft is coming up yes. very quickly. Yes. Um, you and I were talking about it before. I'm so excited about it. I've watched my second film at this point. Okay. Uh, just I've been watching them together. The first one, her and I both looked at each other as the movie closed and wrapped up. And we both looked at each other and went, wow, that was a really good movie. Okay, good. The second good. movie, Jess was like, this is horrible. I hate this. <laughs> and I was like, that is the perfect review that I need you to have for this movie because it is so out of her realm of what she enjoys in movies. And I loved it. Okay. I am I'm excited to share with you what the second one will be. Okay. I don't know. I don't know if you or Jason or you and Jason are going to appreciate it the same way that I do. Okay. I haven't decided. I think one of you is going to enjoy it. But I, I can't quite put my tongue on whose taste it is yet. Put your tongue on. Yeah, I know. That was a weird you Put your analogy. finger on? <laughs> put my... <laughs> who are you... Who are you ma- which of us are you making out with? <laughs> In this analogy, who's making out with who? Yeah. I... <laughs> but I just... Yeah. It's a certain kind of taste, and I very much enjoyed it. There were elements of the second one that maybe... You have to look past a little bit. Okay. Um, but I'm not gonna spoil it any more than that. So look forward to that. In the next couple weeks, we're gonna be doing the draft episode, and I cannot wait. Okay. Any any non-spoiler, non-giving away comments you want to make about your movies? Mm, I've picked three from my draft, and I think. I picked a very strange category that I think you guys will really appreciate. I'm looking forward to it because you got wildcard, which is the one that I think I wanted the most. Yeah, and I snatched it away. Yeah. So, yeah, look forward to that in the coming weeks. Cool. Awesome. All right. That's it for us. Okay. Uh, We'll see you next time. And thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me.